Hey everybody, Ethan here. Today we're talking about Parasite, and this movie was unique and different in a lot of ways, and one of those ways was actually in the marketing. Instead of just a normal radio trailer, they actually made a pop song for the movie. It's kind of interesting, kind of a weird move, um, but anyway, I, I actually found it. It's, it's hard to find, but I have it here, so here's a clip of that pop song audio trailer for Parasite. Let's roll it. We the best music for trailers. Parasite in theaters now and contractually obligated to include this song such a strange move, right? Like it doesn't give you a feel for the movie at all. Like, I don't know, maybe they should have done a trailer, maybe not. Um, anyways, I thought it was kind of interesting and, and like weirdly like half-assed too. Like it didn't even sound that good. And then also they said in the song that there's a contract in place that they have to be, I didn't hear that song in the movie. So I guess somewhere along the way, lawyers must've gotten involved, I guess. And they cut it out of the movie because I, I didn't hear it in the movie or on the credits or the soundtrack or anything. So it's just a really strange thing that i found online that's totally real anyways enjoy the show i'll cue up the theme song here hold on beep beep boop boop pull this lever put it back and turn it upside down now it's broken and i actually don't need it i'll just type this in and spacebar bad science did the movie get it right bad science or will we have to fight Grab a frozen Coke, some milk does, and your favorite beaker. This is Bad Science, the show that breaks down the science of a film with a comedian and a scientist. I'm Ethan Edinburgh, and today we're discussing 2019's Parasite, the winner of four Oscars. And normally I would tell you, you know, if you haven't seen the movie we're discussing, whatever, who cares, doesn't matter. But this is different. This movie is too good. There's too many twists and turns. So if you haven't seen it, seriously, stop listening to this podcast right now. Go watch Parasite and then come on back. And I think you'll, you'll get a lot out of it. I have two unbelievably great guests today. I'm super excited to talk to them. The first one is a writer, comedian, and producer. She got to work on some of my favorite shows of all time, like Detroiters and The Daily Show with Jon Stewart, and she is the creator and star of Lady Liberty, an award-winning short film that the internet would not let me watch when I tried to this morning. It's <laughs> Julia Linden. I'm so sorry. I'm going to have to talk to the internet about it. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. Thanks for being here. Yeah, if you could somehow, I don't know, write them an email, they would probably get it. And then I could watch this short film, which looks unbelievable. <laughs> yeah, I'll get on that uh, right after we finish recording. I'll, I'll take it up with the internet gods. Okay, perfect. Um, when will it be available? And can you just, you know, summarize it for us? Give me some sort of taste of this short film. Well, I believe it is available right now on omletto.com, which is a kind of short film site, but maybe they are messing with me and you today. And they are like, no, not for Ethan. Um, but it is a coming out and coming of age comedy. And it's kind of just a big celebration of the queer community and the comedy community of New York City. Uh, so I play the lead in it. And it is all about kind of embracing yourself and finding your way on the awkward journey of coming out. 
Excellent. Okay, I can't wait to watch it. I'm going to try this omeletto, but at least I know who to attack if it doesn't work. Yes, yes. The guy's name is Alan. He's lovely, but if it's if it's messed up, it's all his fault. I mean, listen, I'm sure he's lovely, but I got to do what I got to do. Hey, sorry to interrupt this program, but I have an urgent message from your host, Ethan Edinburgh. Okay, Ethan, go. Okay, thank you so much. I just wanted to say very quickly, we're going to get right back into the show, that since recording the show, I have watched Julia Linden's short film, Lady Liberty, and I loved it. It's phenomenal. You can find it very quickly. I don't know why I was so stupid that I couldn't find it online, but she sent it to me. You can Google it, Lady Liberty, Julia Linden. It's great. Funny, fantastic, and awesome. Okay, okay, okay. Back to the show, back to the show. Okay, you're right. I'm sorry. And I got to just reiterate how, like, The Daily Show with Jon Stewart just totally shaped my life. And Detroiters, I felt like, at the time, was the best show on television. And I was bummed for, like, two months straight that it got canceled. I know. Still so much. But people are finding it now. And I had this little part in season two. And so I get these random texts from friends just being like, you, 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 you're, you're in it. Um, so those make my day and they'll let me know that people are finding it still. That's unbelievable. If you haven't seen that show, go find it. Go find it like the world is right now because it's truly just... Yeah, ComedyCentral.com. It's hilarious. Um, I adore it so much. Okay. Joining us today to talk about Parasite is a PhD candidate whose articles have been featured in the New York Times, Psychology Today, the Wall Street Journal, and many more. It's Rob Henderson. Hey, Ethan. Yeah, it's great to be here. It's great to have you, Rob. I was looking over a bunch of your articles today, and I'm, I'm so impressed by your work. I'm so excited to talk to you. A lot of them seem to have parallels to this movie, right? Would you say that? Uh, yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, a lot of my research and, and just general interest um, you know, relate to social class, social status, and of course, there's a lot of that in the in the plot of, of Parasite. Yeah, but a lot of it's overblown, right? I mean, we don't really have like class problems. <laughs> yeah, definitely not not at all in, in the U.S. Not at all. <laughs> yeah, especially in the U.S. <laughs> yeah. Um, okay, so I have a few I wanted to ask you about specifically, but before we get into it, I just want to hear what each of your experiences were with the movie. Julia, when did you first see it? What was your reaction to it? Well, I first heard about it. I was flying. I remember flying to this film festival in Oaxaca, Mexico, and I became good fast friends with my seatmate, uh, who was a total film buff. And he started telling me about how all his like his Twitter was blowing up, that he had heard that everyone was going to this midnight showing of this Korean movie, Parasite, and it was amazing. So I felt like, ooh, I got to see this the minute I land. I got to find out, research about it. Um, I finally did see it. And, you know, I hadn't watched the trailer. I hadn't watched anything before and just absolutely loved the journey of it, the twists and the turns, the music, the acting, everything. And then I just rewatched it a couple nights ago and love it on a whole new level and definitely have a ton of questions for Rob. Yeah, <laughs> as do I. Um, Rob, what was your experience? Yeah, so I saw it, uh, my girlfriend and I, I think it was the last movie we saw before the lockdowns and the pandemic and everything. Wow. Uh, let's say like January or maybe very early February here in the UK. And yeah, I was also just blown away by it. I loved the the, the plot, this sort of cinematography, the symbolism of it, um, you know, just like a quick example about how the, you know, the wealthy family lives sort of high up on that hill and the less fortunate family lives in that sort of like apartment basement dwelling like lower to the ground yeah there was uh, just a lot to like about it and a lot of a lot of subtlety 
Definitely. Yeah, it's like every little thing in this movie was on purpose, especially this morning I was doing research on it, and it's staggering how much like the Ramdon <laughs> even has to do with classism. It's crazy to me. Um, crazy cool. Uh, yeah, it was also, for me, one of those situations where it was super hyped. Everyone was talking about it at the time when it came out, and I always get a little skeptical and worried about that, that I'm going to have high expectations. But you can't hype it enough, honestly. It, it truly is that good. So again, if you if you haven't seen this movie and don't know what we're talking about, what is wrong? How could you not listen to my words in the intro? Um, okay, so one of your articles I was skimming through um, and excuse me for doing so, but I was in a rush for the pod, uh, was titled The Upper Hand, When Does Social Status Lead to Conflict? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So can you tell me when that leads to conflict? I have my own theories, but I am not, como se dice, educated enough <laughs> to properly speak on it. Yeah, yeah. So that article was was based on some some research from uh, the late sociologist Roger V. Gould, who taught at Yale uh, many years ago. And his basic thesis is that individuals who are sort of closer in social status are more likely to engage in violent conflict. So he compiled research um, from multiple different countries. I mean, it was you know, the U.S., India, and, and some others, and basically found that, for example, homicides are between four to eight times more likely between um, social equals compared to someone of a of, of a different social class. You know, sort of. Um, committing murder or homicide against someone who's higher or lower than themselves. Wow. It also is the case for uh, within family situations as well. So brothers are more likely to kill brothers than sisters. Sisters are more likely to kill sisters compared to their brothers. Uh, fathers are more likely to kill sons and vice versa. And then same with same with mothers and daughters, I believe, as well. And so his, his claim is that basically in the absence of uh, methods to determine social rank, or if the social rank is ambiguous, then conflict is more likely. One of his more simple examples that he gives is uh, in, in work environments, typically the boss is older than the employee, but in rare occasions, um, sometimes the boss is younger and the employee is older. And those situations, conflict is actually more likely to erupt because both people have claims to higher respect. So typically, and especially in more traditional societies, but you know, even in the US, we tend to give a little bit more respect to those who are older. Um, but of course, the boss, even if he or she is younger, they're still sort of, um, you know, in that in that managerial position or whatever. And in those cases, um, both people can feel slighted, uh, they feel like maybe they're not uh, receiving the due respect from the other person. So I found that idea absolutely fascinating. Another study that I cited in that uh, in that article was something even as simple as walking along narrow sidewalks. So there was this kind of amusing study where some researchers just sort of went out into the field, as we say, and watched people um, trying to walk past each other uh, along narrow pathways. And what they found was that about 70% of the time, the shorter person sort of yields or gives way to the taller person, um, you know, when you control for control for things like gender and age. So I think basically the, the summary of this is that, um, you know, when there's a, a sort of clear differential between people, conflict appears to be less likely. Wow. Yeah, that is fascinating because, I don't know, naturally you would think it's kind of the opposite, uh, it would be the opposite effect. Mm -hmm. Because one of my theories, I remember seeing 
I can't remember if it was like a documentary or if it was a film, which is a, a terrible thing to confuse. <laughs> um, but I believe in Colombia there was terrible like class warfare, you know, kidnappings and stuff like that. And they were describing how the impoverished communities were kind of like right up against the rich families. And obviously in this film, they are separated by, you know, 3,000 stairways, uh, it appears. Um, <laughs> but they don't seem that far apart, right? So I don't know. Do you think psychologically that plays a part in the, you know, vitriol you feel for the for the upper class, like being able to like physically see what they have that you don't? Yeah, I definitely think there's an element of that, um, especially when you're exposed to it more fre frequently. What I thought was maybe a little bit more overlooked was kind of the way that the, the was it the, the Kim family, uh, the sort of less less affluent family, their interactions with the housekeeper and her husband, uh, they were absolutely vicious to each other. And both of right. those two groups, you know, the 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 woman and her husband, and then the the Kim family, they were sort of you know in in that sort of working class or more blue collar uh, group, and they were pretty bad to each other, right? Uh, there was like uh, threatening blackmail, mm -hmm. a ton of physical violence, um, a lot of just uh, vitriol aimed at one another. And to me, that sort of aligns roughly with with the, the gold idea that, that I talked about earlier, the gold's thesis about social rank. Because I mean, if you think about it, those two groups could have uh, united, right? Like I was thinking to myself as I was watching it the second time, like, why don't you guys just join forces? Right and take these rich people out <laughs> like you guys could sort of find ways to work together mm -hmm. um but you know it, it proved to be sort of not not possible for them or or you know very difficult or whatever so i think that of course there's that overt sort of class conflict that can arise but yeah there's also this sort of intra-class sort of the within group uh competition and conflict that can also sort of maybe maybe get in the way of of taking out the the people above you or, or sort of um e equalizing the the playing field yeah yeah i felt that a lot watching for the second time where i was found myself really interested in the dynamic between the the housekeeper and the kim family and it's just another layers on layers and yeah, I think everything was just so there was it was so heated in the moment of kind of everyone realizing what was happening and the power dynamic switching so quickly that there wasn't time for that breather. But then you could tell the Kim family had that breather and they were like, oh, send down the, the food. We'll make nice. And it was just it's too late because if you get off on the wrong foot and you're both, you know, attacking each other, then it's a goner. Mm. Yeah. Similarly, I was the first time I watched it, just, you know, deer in headlights taking this in. And then yesterday watching it, I was definitely a lot more aware of this class eating class. It's kind of like that classic crab analogy where like when they're trying to like get out of a bucket, they will drag one down as it's leaving. And it just reminded me, especially when she kicks the housekeeper down the stairs and she ends up you know, having a, a fatal injury to her head. The fact that it happens at like the lowest physical point in the house, you know, she kicks her down into the basement and that's where she has an injury. I was just like, oh man, like this is <laughs> really well thought out. Yeah, I really thought that there wasn't, a, there were no accidents uh, in the movie or no, like every little detail was, was, um, was carefully thought through and yeah, I didn't even think about that, but that's a great point um, about how the, the sort of uh, the mother of the Kim family kicks the housekeeper down, right? Like while she's trying to stay above uh, with with the you know in that same environment with the with the more affluent family. Yeah, I keep thinking about the layers so much of like, and I've been 
since watching it, just kind of walking around, like thinking about that house and what, like the house is such, is such a character in the film. Ethan, do you find anything on Reddit about, was the house a set? Does the house a real thing that existed? I think both the Kim family, first of all, I, I did not go on Reddit. So if there's tons of useful information there, I apologize. Oh, I have no idea. I just thought that was uh, your research vibe. <laughs> you just seem like a Reddit totally, researcher. No, you're totally correct to assume that. And and I have been on it before. But I did read that the Kim family home and the wealthy family home are both like part of it is real. And then like part of it they created for the film. Um, Be a great but, quarantine house. <laughs> yeah. That's for sure. It'd be a great anything house. All right, we're going to take a quick break and we'll be right back. The break is over. Here we go. Back to the show about science. Okay, so normally I would not even do a quiz. We used to do quizzes back in like when the podcast first started about two years ago. For this one, for some reason, I have two different quizzes. So I hope you guys like to play games. Yeah. So the the first one, since we're talking about the wealthy, I'm calling Inequality Fun Zone. Life isn't fair. <laughs> oh, no. Inequality Fun Zone. Yeah, cool. <laughs> and I pretty much just added Fun Zone to try to make this more fun. So I'll ask the question. And Julia, maybe you can answer first, uh, just so we have some sort of order here. Great. Okay. Inequality fun zone time. So stoked about this. Love inequality. Who doesn't? First question. <laughs> How many billionaires are on the earth? Who? Uh, ooh. Ooh. Uh, <laughs> my reaction's ready. Uh, uh, that would be uh, 217. Okay, 217. Rob. I want to say it's less than 100, but now that Julia said over 200, now I'm second guessing, but... I'll, I'll just say 99. The answer is 2,153. Whoa. Wow. Okay. They are worth a combined $10 trillion. So congrats to them. You know, uh, great work. Uh, of course, you know, many people don't have health systems or quality education or enough food or water to survive. But this is the Inequality Fun Zone. Next question. Oh, this game is super fun. Keep going. <laughs> How much is 1% interest? on $1 billion? Uh, Little math question. Okay. Um, well, instead of committing to doing the math, I will uh, just feel it in my gut yep. and say, la, la, la. is it 10, 10 million? Rob. Yeah, that was that sounds right. I would go with 10, 10 million. Oh my God. Yeah, you're both correct. It oh is $10 million. Oh my God. Nice. <laughs> Which wow. means they could probably yeah. end poverty just by donating their interest hilarious fun zone fact here i tried to check the math on my iphone calculator app and it doesn't go to a billion you're not even allowed to look at a billion the number uh i can see a hundred million but that's not a billion one billion is one thousand million oh my gosh <laughs> okay so speaking of donations not including bill gates and warren buffett what percentage of their income do the world's top 20 billionaires give away? Oh, God, probably nothing like 0.05%. Um, <laughs> Rob. Uh, I'll go, the op I'll go the, the, they're more generous. I'll say 1%. 0.3%. Oh, man. <laughs> awesome, fun zone time. Jump on in, last question. This one, it's just a, it's a feel-gooder for the holidays. How much money does Jeff Bezos make per minute? Oh my gosh. Well, does his wife take 50%? <laughs> I don't know. No comment. 
Okay, no comment. Gotcha. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> let's say ten thousand dollars. Okay, Rob. Uh, I'll go. I'll go twenty thousand. $149,353 per minute. <laughs> um, so in that quiz, we all lose. Uh, there's no winner. Um, I think that's fair. <laughs> I can't wait to see what your second game is. Uh, the second game, I mean, we can just go right into it if you guys want. I really, there's no, there's no rules here. Is that, when the, is that called the equality fun zone? Uh, no, there is no equality. This is <laughs> no. the... No. This is Parasite Paradise. It's Parasite Paradise. It's time to learn about gross, disgusting bugs. Ew, yucky. I want to, in advance, just apologize for spreading the information contained in this quiz. You know, my hat's off to any scientist or anybody with any expertise, but if you specifically study parasites and you're doing work in that field, <laughs> I mean, good for you, man. Good for you for living in this world. I did, like... Literally 15 minutes of research here and was losing my mind. Question one, how long can a tick live without food or water? Oh, no. This is a long time. Uh, a year. <laughs> Rob. Uh, food or water? Maybe two weeks? 200 days. Damn. Julia's got that one. Yeah, that's a long time without food or water uh, for those ticks. Okay. How many times per day can a single flea bite? Oh, a hundred. Okay, Rob. Five hundred. Okay, Rob's taking this one. It's four hundred. Wow. Nice. Uh, that's one to one here. They don't just bite once and die. They're not those kinds. <laughs> no, they aren't. Unfortunately, if only. Yeah. Okay. Uh, and this quiz is is there's a lot riding on this, so you really want to win, guys. The other one, obviously, the billionaires win. There's nothing you can do about it. But this one, huge prizes at the end. <laughs> one to one. Third question: How many times? Can a flea jump in a row without stopping? Oh, cool. Uh, 1,000. Uh, 300. 30,000, y'all. What? <laughs> Crazy. <laughs> Imagine doing 30,000 jump ropes in a row. <laughs> While taking time to bite. To jump, to bite, to jump. Uh, they're freaks, freak alien creatures. Um, but I think, uh, Rob, you had the bigger number, correct? So that's two to one. Oh, okay. If I'm not mistaken, I don't know. Uh, I'm not keeping track of this. Uh, <laughs> we all I might have had the bigger one. <laughs> okay. You know what? For my confusion, you both get a point. <laughs> Perfect. <laughs> it's not fair. The games aren't fair. Okay. Last question. What percentage of living things on Earth are parasites? Oh, wow. Hmm. 3%. Roberto. Yeah, now I'm thinking, like, what counts as a parasite? Because, like, humans eat plants and animals and things, and we require them to survive. And I can give you the definition. It's an organism that lives on or in another organism known as a host. Okay. Uh, so it has to have a, a parasitism relationship, mm. apparently. I'll just go with um, 60%. You are closer, and maybe the game is just tied and you both win. It's 80%. Wow. Wow. Are humans parasites? <laughs> uh, no. I think parasites, it's mostly hookworms and stuff like that. Wow. Um, I'm willing to, to say that Rob did, did win this game. Wow. <laughs> Humble Julia Linden here. Um, that's amazing. How kind of you. Mm -hmm. uh, your prize will be uh, mailed to you in a few years time. So look out for that. It's going to be really, really cool. So jumping back here, 
there's a conversation I wanted to touch on when they're like getting drunk on whiskey in the living room, the Kim family. And they're talking about being, quote, rich. Uh, she says the mom of the, the wealthy family is rich because she's nice. Mm. And that money is an iron. It straightens everything out. And that if she was rich, you know, she'd be nice to everybody. You know, it's kind of like, a, what does she care? Because she's already rich mentality. And uh, yeah, so Rob, I just kind of wanted your, your thoughts on that scene. Did you relate with that? Do you agree with that? I don't know. How, how do you see that? Yeah, right, right. And so, so yeah, that I, I love that line. I thought it was a really interesting idea. And I think it's sort of in, intuitive. We tend to think that, um, you know, a lot of the reasons why people are kind of mean or aggressive, not so kind to each other is because of lack of resources. Um, and there's there's some truth to that, of course, um, sort of more affluent areas, um, socioeconomic status and so on. It tends to negatively correlate with with violence, for example. Um, you know, richer neighborhoods tend to be less violent, for example. But um, there's also some other interesting research alongside that that is also basically suggests that money allows people to sort of express themselves and express their sort of underlying propensities. So, for example, um, uh, obesity is one example. So in very impoverished areas, um, people don't look that different from one another in terms of their, you know, their BMI, their body mass, simply because they don't have the, the resources or the means such that their sort of underlying propensity for obesity might become apparent. Um, and there's some evidence suggesting that this is true for personality as well, that in poorer countries, there's less variation in personality types, um, simply because they don't have the resources to express, you know, who they who they, you know, quote, unquote, truly are, whereas more rich countries, uh, personality differences tend to magnify, they tend to increase. And one argument for this is because, you know, once you have resources, once you sort of reach that base level, where your physical needs are met, then you can start to express who you really are, and it sort of express your your underlying traits one way or another. Um, so it's, it's possible if the Kim family, sort of had the same level of wealth as the Park family, um, yeah, maybe they could be sort of, uh, you know, nice because they're they're rich. I felt like the Kim family had more uh, personality than the Park family. Certainly, I thought they were more interesting to watch. I mean, it's a frightening conclusion to come to or, or potentially come to is that the, like, money can unlock your character traits. I mean, that's like a really strange and, uh, I don't know, like debilitating thought. Yeah, yeah, I think it's uh, I think it's interesting. I mean, it's um, either way it could be maybe more of an optimist, maybe more of a pessimist, depending on how you look at it. But um, for example, things like um, like addiction, for example, um, I've read some research, some, some like the clinical research showing that, you know, often people who are extremely impoverished and, and who sort of tend to, you know, do a lot of drugs, once they obtain large sums of money, you know, they sort of spend that in on things that that can hurt them later, you know, spending it on alcohol or drugs or what have you. Um, so if you have that propensity for addiction, money will actually just allow you to indulge that even more. But on the other hand, yeah, if you tend to maybe uh, lean in a direction where you're more nice or more cooperative or, or what have you, then you'll you'll sort of use your resources to to amplify those characteristics as well. Wowzers. Um, I had another question for you based on another article. So uh, Ki Woo, or Kevin in this film, has to pretend that he's a college student in order to be hired as a tutor. And you wrote an article called, The College Dropout Rate is 45%. Should everyone still go? Mm-hmm. That's essentially my question. <laughs> Should everyone still go? And if not, what what are the alternatives? What's the future of education look like then? Yeah. Yeah. I, uh, I found that... Uh 
sort of the education dynamic interesting. So when I, I rewatched that scene a second time between uh, Kai Wu, the, the sort of, you know, the son of the less affluent family, the Kim family, um, his college educated friend is asking him to replace him as the tutor for the, the sort of the rich daughter. And the uh, Kai Wu sort of, it seems like he lacks confidence and his college educated friend is saying, you know, you're capable, you know, you're, you're, you're better than a lot of these college people because you took the university entrance exam, I think it was four times. Um, but I think the audience is left to sort of infer that he actually didn't get in, even though he took the, the entrance exam four times. So it's sort of left unclear. Is this, you know, is he, is he a smart guy? Does he just not test well? And also it's sort of left unclear whether his friend believes he, he is smart or if his friend is just sort of manipulating him because he wants him to be the rich daughter's tutor because he trusts him more. Right. So I found that scene sort of uh, you know, perfectly ambiguous uh, in, in sort of like the, the best way. But yeah, to, to the question about education, um, you know, I'm not, I'm not entirely sure uh, what, the, what the best way to sort of fix or, or um, improve the education system in the U.S., yeah, the, the dropout rate is is somewhere between 40 and 50 percent. It sort of varies year to year. And what's going on in the U.S. right now is about 60 percent of high school students enter some kind of college after high school, and then about half of them end up dropping out. And, you know, there's some debate about the reason for this. Of course, one obvious one would be sort of economic constraints. Maybe a lot of these students can't afford it. And certainly that's a big part of it. But even for more sort of affordable institutions, the dropout rate is still pretty high. So in California, community colleges tend to be more affordable than four-year institutions. And the dropout rate for community colleges is 70%. Um, so you might think like, oh, well, if it's more affordable, fewer people will drop out. But at least the, the data from the community colleges, you know, at least that piece of evidence doesn't seem to, to support the idea that you know, affordability will improve the, the sort of uh, attrition rates. One idea I've seen suggested, um, I think it was by some psychologists, I can't remember the names, but to basically make the SAT free would maybe, uh, you know, make it easier for some kids to see how they're, how they're performing, see how they might compare with, you know, kids who do go to college, um, if they themselves maybe weren't thinking about it. You know, so for me, I got really bad grades in high school. And later when I took a standardized test, I actually scored pretty well on it. And I did, I always thought of myself, I didn't think of myself as a dumb kid, but definitely not like a, like a, like a high achieving. I was not a straight A student by any means. Like, I, I thought those kids were, were nerds, like dorks. I didn't like them. Um, <laughs> but then when I got the semi SAT score as one of those kinds of kids, I was like, wait a minute, what's going on here? So I think like making those tests, you know, freely available might alleviate some of the some of the sort of education inequality we're seeing. Yeah, that, that makes a lot of sense and, and stunning to hear that about your high school experience. I didn't see you as the stoner jock making fun of the nerds, so that's good to know. <laughs> um, Julia, do you have a solution? How do we solve education? Can you just can you just wrap that oh, up in a nice bow for me? Yeah, I'm going um, I'm, I'm to give you a website. It's called um, education.gov, and you can see all my uh, agenda stuff on there. Oh, that's your website? That's mine. Yeah, it's a Squarespace. <laughs> it's pretty simple. It's a Squarespace that I set up um, just around the start of the pandemic, but I'm pretty proud of how it looks, and, and most of the information is like fairly okay. Um, Julia, I just tried to go to education.gov. Yeah. I'm not trying to call you out, but it says the site can't be reached. The IP address cannot be found. Oh, that's because we're having a snow day across the country. Oh, <laughs> 
<laughs> the website's having a snow yeah, day. Yeah, the website, the schools, all the colleges. It's just a day off. Okay, awesome. Yeah, good to know. Well, I'll try tomorrow, and I'm sure I'll, I'll learn all about how to solve education. That's cool. I hope so. All right, we're going to take a quick break, and we'll be right back. The break is over. Here we go. Back to the show about science. Um, okay, do either of you know Morse code, and should I learn it? Okay. <laughs> Uh, personally, I am not familiar with Morse code, but uh, I loved that particular uh, detail in the movie and the way that sort of fit into the plot line. I love it too. And I'm familiar in the way that I've gone to the Spy Museum in Washington, D.C., probably almost, ten, yeah, upwards of 10 times in my life. Wow. And I always spend a little extra time in the Morse code exhibit trying to soak it in and think, oh, I should look at this when I leave and do some more research, but I never do. Wow. Okay. So it didn't stick all 10 times. It didn't motivate right. you to learn it. It's a great museum. They just redid it and uh, highly suggest checking it out post pandemic. Yeah. I would love to check that out. That sounds right up my alley. Um, it just feels like Morse code is a super useful thing to know, like in case of emergencies. And yet I got to guess that like upwards of 90% of people don't know it. <laughs> that would be great if they taught it in schools now. Yeah. Speaking on the education system, let's learn Morse code. Everyone should know it. Let's <laughs> teach like, I'm taxes. Spanish and then I have gem and then Morse. I have Morse code. I have how to do my taxes class. I have nutrition. I mean, come on now. I wonder if there's an app. Morse code app? Yeah. There's got to be. I think I could learn it through that. If not, we should probably start that up and make a billion dollars. And then donate 0.3% <laughs> of our That'd be, earnings. That would be generous. That's just the average. <laughs> That's just the average. Uh, a lot of people do less, apparently, which I know you wouldn't think is possible, but apparently it's true. Um, and speaking of income, I wanted to touch on this. This is another like small part of the movie, but I, I, I wrote it down as a note and did some very, very minute research about it. But Chong Suk, the mother of the Kim family, they show was like an Olympic athlete. And so... That also stuck out to me as like, well, wait a minute, why? They don't have anything. They're like living in this semi-basement place, but she's like this awesome athlete. And that also makes sense. It's also a class warfare issue. Olympians are like barely paid unless you're in, you know, the top 1% of Olympians. It's basically a side gig. All these people have like full-time jobs as well as being in the Olympics. Yeah, that's fascinating. I, I... That's all all over the world or just in Korea? Like Olympians Olympians in the no. U.S. seem to become influencers fairly easily. Uh, I mean, listen, I, I didn't do, again, a vast amount of research. I don't know how many are TikTok stars or whatever. But from what I understand, you're not like paid by the Olympic committee. What I was reading almost reminded me of like the college athlete mm. situation where like they're the the organization is making crap tons of money and you know everybody watches the olympics uh and ad revenue and all this kind of stuff but they're not they don't have salaries the athletes like they just do it out of the love of competition that doesn't completely shock me yeah it's it's not shocking it's just a bummer yeah. it's just like oh right of course right but then you know michael phelps does sure. great therapy commercials <laughs> well, it again, all works he, out in the end. He's <laughs> does it? He's like the one person. He's like the top, you know, guy. Right, that's right, why right. he's all over the place. Yeah. One thing that I was thinking about is that if if that's the case, then probably the only people who can afford to do that are, I mean, I, I would imagine it's disproportionately people who come from affluent families because who else can afford to train all day and not have a job or like have the job? Like, right. how do you support yourself while you're doing that? Yeah. So, or 
or when you're young, get all, you know, the best coaches and, and pay for them before you're someone who, you know, the Olympic committee will, you know, help endorse and pay for those coaches. Right. So maybe there's a bunch of athletes out there that we don't actually know about, like a lot of potential talent that we just, yeah, we're overlooking because of the, the economic constraint. Mm. Totally. Um, okay. I, I have to ask, and this can be for both of you, you know, equally, but the, like one of the main focuses in the film and for me watching the second time was the scholar stone right mm. the landscape mountain that was given by his rich friend uh given to to kevin so what do you think that it means that this stone that he has embedded with like the hope of wealth for his family is then used to smash him over the head mm. either or take your time yeah that's a good question yeah yeah i was thinking about that as well um you know sort of like you the first time around it was just sort of taking it in and the second time i try to pay closer attention to the details and i noticed that too that this stone i mean it definitely is meant to symbolize something um i guess maybe in the beginning it we're meant to maybe think that it symbolizes sort of the upcoming prosperity that we think they might get when they sort of become more involved with the park family uh, but then later it's used as a weapon i think at least once maybe twice um and and yeah it's used to like he was bludgeoned on the head the son the kim son was bludgeoned on the head with it a couple of times um and i think actually like we're meant to believe that he died and we later see him again um in the movie but yeah i'm i'm not sure exactly what to what to make of it maybe I don't know, maybe don't accept stones from your, your rich college educated friend. <laughs> that's, that's the message you got from it was just like, don't accept gifts. <laughs> yeah, that's um, I also was hooked on it and just kind of was like, okay, I didn't understand exactly what the stone was in the beginning uh, or the first watch. I'm going to figure it out this time. So I just kept tracking and realizing just how major it was. And, and I do love that idea that he says to his dad of, um, that you know the stone is clinging to him so he that's almost like a relinquishing of of his own power that it's not like he's choosing to bring it everywhere it's it's now you know following him everywhere um and we see it as this like I, at first i take it in as uh something that is that he's aspiring to that is hopeful but ultimately when he's smashed like it it's a a rock of danger that he has been bringing around with him this whole time also, yeah. remind me later on when he's... First of all, I do want to talk about the laughing stuff because I don't think I... Uh, mm. When when he break, wakes up from uh, the brain injury and just kind of can't stop laughing. But is he holding... Like, does he bring that stone with him when they look at the photo of his sister who's passed? Ooh, that's a good question. And if he's holding it and like... I don't think so. Okay, so we never see it after he's... Yeah, no, no, well, no, we do, we do. He goes... Oh. We see him like go to the river and put it in that riverbed. Oh, that's correct. Yes, yes, yes. Yeah, that was toward the end of the movie. Yeah. Right, right. But maybe he is able. It's not clinging to him. He's able. It doesn't like show up somewhere else. It stays in that riverbed because he knows it's like a dangerous thing that he's better off without. Maybe. I mean that I I I think that's perfectly put. I think he realized kind of the the dangers of. I mean, yeah. For me, I, I'm trying. And again, I'm sure I can watch this movie nine times and kind of get something different each time. But but this time I was focused on it as the hope for prosperity, the hope for wealth, that, which I think he kind of like said towards the beginning. So I'm, I'm going very liberal here, I guess. <laughs> mm. But but yeah, then once realizing that, you know, that can result, like just focusing on maybe monetary gains can, you know, erupt into violence and, you know, a, a death of a family member. Um, yeah, I feel like he probably thinks, you know, oh, maybe my life is better without this stone. But then again, he still 
you know, in that, in that letter that he's reading at the end to his, to his dad, he's kind of, you know, hoping and wishing that he's going to make enough money to buy that house. Which, by the way, I got to say, there's a fascinating fact I found out that at the end of the movie, there's a song, um, I think it's in Korean, and it's sung by that character, um, Kai Woo or Kevin. And the lyrics were written by uh, Bong Joon-ho, and it's basically saying, it's like, it's almost like an epilogue or something. It's basically saying like that the amount of money he would, he would have to like save the amount of money he's making for another 460 years oh to buy God. the house. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so, um, so yeah, I don't know. It does seem like a kind of like a financial warning or like, you know, like a money can't buy you happiness type of message there with the stone maybe. Yeah. yeah interesting. Although it can make you nice and bring out your character traits <laughs> and make you a real person, I guess. Anyways, guys, I know we're running out of time. I've absolutely had a ball talking to you both. Uh, this movie is just so phenomenal, and I could talk about it all day. But yeah, where Julia, I'm, I, I hope people can watch this movie on uh, Omleto, I believe. That's it, Omleto. Yeah, or you could just check it. It's, it's on my website, too, at www.julialinden.com. Wonderful. And should people look out for anything else? Follow you on social media, etc. Yeah, follow me on, on social media on Instagram. Um, and look out for I'll be doing things and they should find me. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Couldn't agree more with that. Yeah, I mean Ethan, it's just a a cold hard fact that I'll be doing things and people should find me. <laughs> look it up. Education.gov. Um <laughs> That's me, don't wear it out. <laughs> Uh, Julia Linden, yes, thank you so much. Delightful to Thanks talk to for you. Having me. I can't wait for those things that you're going to do, and I will be watching and waiting. I'm a big fan. Thank you. Um, Rob, first off, what is woke fishing? You mentioned it in an article. I've been waiting all episode to ask you. <laughs> <laughs> Saving the, the best for last. Um, yeah, I, so, so I read about this in, uh, I think it was an article in Vice, uh, the idea of woke fishing is basically a sort of um, a variation on on the idea of catfishing. So I think a lot of people know that catfishing is when people sort of put fake profile photos or fake information on dating websites, pretending to be someone they're not. Woke phishing, uh, apparently a, a lot of guys out there are uh, sort of pretending to hold uh, sort of socially progressive political attitudes and posting that on their dating profiles, dating apps, you know, Tinder or whatever. Uh, basically under the guise of trying to become more attractive to potential romantic partners. Uh, so this this writer on Vice, um, a female journalist, was basically saying that, like, you know, keep keep an eye out there. There's a lot of guys out there who are, who are you know, quote unquote, woke, woke fishermen who are <laughs> sort of lying about their beliefs to, to get into your pants. Wow. <laughs> that's terrible. Uh, if you're listening <laughs> to this and that's you, stop. How can we spot them? Oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I don't. I don't actually know if there's a if there's a way. Um, I mean, this is one of the sort of uh, the, the more treacherous aspects of of dating and romance is that you know probably as soon as um, there is a way to spot them, those guys will then sort of update their strategies, right, and then try to conceal that aspect of themselves that you could previously detect that they were wolf fishermen. So it's a it's a never ending game, I guess, of of uh, you know how to navigate the romantic landscape. How often and this is me just trying to, you know, spin a ball of uh, of yarn, like trying to make something good out of something terrible, but um how often do you think it is that a guy is woke fishing and during that process where he has to do, you know, 
like I do for this podcast, terrible, minimal research, uh, <laughs> is moved and thinks like, oh, you know what? I actually really, uh, this is a cause that I'm for. And now I'm 100% in. Uh, I, I think that probably happens. Um, I don't right. have any hard research on this. But yeah, I mean, we do tend to adopt the beliefs of people around us. And often when you when you say something, when you say you believe something long enough, even if at first maybe you aren't completely sure, over time you can start to solidify uh, those beliefs and, and come to have more confidence in them. There is some other research, you know, for better or worse, there is this interesting research on, on marriage and, and political attitudes, which basically suggests that typically what happens is that the under like heterosexual marriages, women are more apt to adopt the political beliefs of their husband rather than vice versa. So mm -hmm. I don't know if that's like, you know, always the case that one gender adopts the beliefs of the other in every case. But I mean, one way to think about it is just like in general, maybe we're just more prone to to adopting the beliefs of people around us. And it, I don't know if it's just necessarily constrained to, you know, one gender or the other. Got you. Well, women are definitely better than men and should make up all of the power positions in um, all governments. I think that's a fact. Um, and I would say I was trying to paint woke fishermen in a good light. Wait, were you just woke fishing? No, I'm not woke fishing. <laughs> uh, I really do believe that. Listen, we've had our go as as men you know we've we've done we've been the ones making decisions for like a really long time it didn't really work out i think we can all agree so hand over the reins that's all i'm saying amen amen why not try it out guys see what happens but uh yeah stop woke fishing if you are doing that that's terrible be yourself um even if you're a terrible dude women need to know that you're terrible that's okay mm -hmm. um mm -hmm. rob where can people find you? Where can people read these great articles? Yeah, yeah. So uh, you can follow me on Twitter at Rob K. Henderson. Uh, don't have a website or anything right now. I'm still working on building it. I'm happy to help you. You can, I've done a lot of great <laughs> don't, work. Don't Education.gov. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, and then uh, the, the articles. Um, just, yeah, you can just Google Psychology Today, Rob Henderson, and you can see the archives of all of my, my most recent uh, pieces. Fantastic. Okay. Well, Julia, Rob, thank you so much for joining me and discussing this great film. And we'll talk next time about Parasite, the HBO series, which apparently is in production. <laughs> is it really? I read that somewhere. So I oh, cannot cool. confirm it. Could have been read it. But yeah, supposedly that's going to come out and then we can, we can keep talking about our hero billionaires. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for having us. Thanks, Ethan. Absolutely. Bye-bye. Bad Science is a Seeker podcast produced by Emily Feld and me, Ethan Edinburgh. Our editor is Lucas Bollinger, and our social media is managed by Blue Whale Media. Shout out to EJ and Kate. And the executive Final Cut Pro producer, like Final Cut Pro 7, which is actually what this movie was edited with, astonishingly is Brett Kushner. Oh, follow us on Instagram at BadSciencePod. If there's a movie you'd like us to discuss on the podcast, feel free to email at BadScienceAtSeeker.com. That's BadScienceAtSeeker.com. And please leave us an iTunes review. It makes sure people know about the podcast, which we really appreciate. Thanks for listening. Bye.